Hello, and welcome back to Love and Friendship. Today we are taking our one-day stopover in the world of Eastern philosophy, um, which means that this class is going to kind of be a microcosm of the whole semester in some ways, insofar as we're just going to try and run through a lot of important texts really, really quickly, because we really don't have a lot of time to spend on Eastern philosophy, unfortunately. Um, and part of the reason here is because we're dealing with a very different tradition and a very different sort of lineage here. Um, as much as Eastern philosophy is really insightful and really important and honestly comes to a lot of the same conclusions that we have come to uh, in, in Western philosophy, the fact of the matter is that the two just don't intersect all that frequently. Um, like, it does happen, and there are definitely scholars out there who sort of tie, you know, like the Hindu traditions or, or Chinese traditions to developments in Western philosophy for one reason or another. Um, there's certainly a certain school of thought that thinks that um, both Christianity and, like, Platonic philosophy may have derived in some way from Eastern philosophy, um, thanks to Alexander the Great sweeping through in his Grand Hellenistic project. Um, which we'll talk about next class. Um, but really, for the most part, they very much do develop along parallel lines, like along different strains. Um, the fact of the matter is, for the next several weeks of class, as we're discussing you know, the end of classical philosophy with the Stoics and the rise of Christianity, and when we're discussing medieval philosophy and modern philosophy all the way up into like 17th and 18th centuries, the next time that we're really going to see a philosopher in the West who is significantly influenced by thinking from the East is probably Schopenhauer, and that's not until like 1850-ish. So the fact of the matter is this is going to be going on very separately from what we're talking about. Um, now, there's definitely been a sort of push uh, in recent memory to sort of include more Eastern philosophy in survey courses like this one. Um, and it's kind of a hard thing to accomplish, I think. Like, I, I think the, the motivation is fairly benevolent, like, it, it's a good idea. Um, the trouble is it just doesn't integrate, because, again, it's a completely different tradition. Um, like, the kind of point of this class is that we're going to be sort of tracking the development of ideas through time, looking at how Plato influences Aristotle, and Aristotle influences, uh, like, Cicero and Augustine and so on, and how they inf influence, you know, Aquinas, and Aquinas influences Spinoza, and so on and so forth, all the way down um, to the modern age. Um, and while, you know, the things like the Kama Sutra or the Dhammapada, Buddhism, Taoism, Confucianism, Hinduism, all of these ideas do sort of contribute to our modern understanding of love for sure, um, especially after, again, Schopenhauer in the 19th century or, you know, the sort of influx of Eastern philosophy through the hippie movement in the 1960s, um, it's still, you know, in order to talk about all of Western philosophy, it doesn't link up that frequently. Um, and to spend a lot of time talking about Eastern philosophy would distract us from that continuity. Um, like, I would be fascinated and have taken a couple of courses here and there on purely Eastern philosophy. Like, I took a course when I was an undergrad on just Chinese philosophy and its development from, you know, Confucius uh, and, the, and Confucianism as well as Taoism and Buddhism and the other sort of, like, uh, involved uh, 
disciplines and, and philosophical strains through you know thousands of years of Chinese history into the modern age, um, or at least up to the Cultural Revolution when the Maoists like mess everything up. Um, and that's a really fascinating thing to do. It's a really interesting discipline, and it's good to do that with that in mind. Like anything short of that is not doing a great deal of justice, I think, um, to you know the the richness of the tradition. Like trying to shoehorn Eastern philosophy into a class ostensibly about Western philosophy, you know, again, as well intentioned as that might be, at the end of the day, doesn't do a lot of good for anyone. It kind of turns out a bit token. Um, but I also think as much as, you know, tokenism is a crappy way of representing other cultures and other disciplines, it's still better than nothing. Um, it's still, you know, an attempt to recognize that there are other alternatives, there are other attitudes. Um, and I think it's especially important in our case because as we are trying to talk about all of these different attitudes towards friendship, all these different attitudes towards love, um, I think it is important to, to show that there are alternatives out there. Like I said at the outset of this class that we were going to look a lot at a lot of different historical alternatives for these two concepts. Um, and as much as, you know, I mostly want to track, you know, how these ideas sort of originated in ancient Greece, you know, the, the Hebrew Bible, um, or the Old Testament, the Torah, um, and then just sort of expanded and developed and changed and, and altered over time, um, I do also want to sort of provide that contrast to, to sort of recognize that there are these different traditions that have very different attitudes, very different priorities, very different concerns, uh, that they're not even asking the same questions in most cases. Um, so as much as it is like a token effort on my part to have a an Eastern philosophy reading that we only get to talk about for one day, again, I think that it's valuable. I think that it gives us some insight as, you know, as much as this is sort of off the beaten path of what we're doing here. Um, and the texts that I've picked for today, the, the Dhammapada, the Kama Sutra, the Analects, and Motsu, um, like these, for the most part, these are texts that I haven't studied extensively. Um, the Dhammapada I frequently teach in ethics um, when I teach it, just, you know, when I'm talking about Eastern philosophy there, I teach the chunks of the Dhammapada as well. Um, because I think it's a really representative and important text for Buddhism. Uh, like, a lot of, like, Buddha doesn't have a scripture on the order of, like, the Old or New Testament, or even the, um, like, the Analects of Confucius or the Tao Te Ching um, for Taoism. Like, it's, it's not that clear. Buddhism is very much bound up with Hinduism, and, and it's sort of difficult to extricate. Um, the Dhammapada is one of those clear-cut, important Buddhist scriptures, um, if you can call it that. Um, and it's very much concerned with ethics on the one hand and love and sort of Buddhist philosophy on the other. So I think it's a really great sort of way to talk about the Buddhist attitude of love, which I think is really important for this class because it has some really interesting things to say and some really interesting parallels with especially Stoicism. Um, which we're going to be talking about in the next couple of classes, which is why I scheduled our Eastern philosophy reading for today. 
Um, we're also going to touch on the Kama Sutra a bit again, as I said before. Like this is not the the fun part of the Kama Sutra. We're not going to do with the the pictures and the you know graphic demonstrations and the specifically explicit sexual positioning. Again, that's not the whole thing. Like I know that in our culture we tend to imagine that the Kama Sutra is basically like you know a hundred pages of various pictures of people doing it, but that's not what the Kama Sutra is or is about. Um, that is very much the sort of perversion brought about by Burton's translation in our culture's sort of fixation and immaturity, to be honest, with respect to sexuality. Really, the Kama Sutra is an important Hindu text that deals with a fairly overlooked component of Hindu philosophy, namely that Hindu philosophy is not really down on sexuality or pleasure uh, in the sense of like worldly pleasure, broadly speaking, what Kama is actually meant to represent. Um, usually when you get talking about Hinduism, you get very caught up in the sort of religious ritual of the whole business, the, the Brahmins and, you know, the various, like, gods and their manifestations. Uh, but Hinduism, as much as it is those things, it is also very grounded in the human experience. And I think the Kama Sutra is very representative of that, um, in a way that is very unusual to our Western experiences, which, you know, Burton may have exploited for, like, gain when he sold his book to all of those very uptight Londoners, but is still kind of important for us to look at and, and recognize more than just as, you know, handbook on how to do it with people. Um, the last two texts definitely reflect my background in Chinese philosophy, which, you know, I, I think is very important in its own right because it is very influential um, in the Far East, like more than just in China. Uh, it's largely through Chinese philosophy that, um, like Japanese Buddhism, the, the Zen Buddhism, for example, becomes very distinct in its own way. Um, like, so as a result, we're, we, I took a chunk from the Analects, um, just the first chapter, honestly, like I found that it was probably the most dense discussion of the things that we're talking about in this class. Um, and the Analects very much is sort of the paradigmatic text of Confucianism. Um, and then we've got, like, a little bit of Motsu, because Motsu's attitude on love is just fascinating and very much, very much different from the rest of Chinese philosophy at that time, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, but the other thing here is, and, you know, it's, it's kind of, like, I don't want to pretend like this is comprehensive by any extent of the imagination. Um, this is very much limited by my own experience, and, you know, I've... I've bumped around and, and like, sort of informally studied a lot of Eastern philosophy over the years, like, multiple classes that I took when I was an undergrad or even a, a graduate student. Um, they sort of touched on these subjects in the same way that we are touching on these subjects, but I've never, like, with the exception of that Chinese philosophy course I was talking about, like, I've never studied Hinduism formally. I've never studied Buddhism formally. I've picked up a lot along the way just because of the amount of time I've spent studying world religions and taking world religion courses. Um, but my knowledge is limited here, and I'm just going to say that right out. Like, I am over my head, and it will not take very much for, for us to sort of uh, expend, exhaust the knowledge that I have about these subjects. Um, honestly, the the Eastern philosophical or religious text that I'm the most familiar with, I'm not teaching today, and that's the Tao Te Ching. Um, like, that's the foundational text for Taoism. It's translated as, like, the Way and Virtue classic. I teach it to my Intro to Philosophy classes. I've read it easily a dozen, perhaps two dozen times at this point. Like, that's 
my like that's the clearest uh, sort of focal point for me. That's the thing that I'm most familiar with. Um, but it also doesn't have a lot to say about friendship and love as such. Like it certainly comes up in the Tao Te Ching, and I know at least one of my students, like before I delivered this lecture, literally asked straight out, "Are we going to read the Tao Te Ching?" I'm like, "No, I'm afraid not." Um, it's a bummer that we can't read it. I think it is a super important text, but I think that these other texts and these other schools and these other disciplines actually have a lot more to do with it. Um, we'll talk about Taoism because it connects fairly deeply to Buddhism. They have a lot in common, um, but it is very much a, its own discipline and it doesn't really, like, Taoists are supposed to sort of eschew relationships. The sage very much stands alone uh, the way that the Taoists present their philosophy. Um, so in a class on love and friendship, it's not going to give us that much to work with. Um, but let's, enough preface and stuff, let's actually dig into the texts here, because again, there's a lot that we have to talk about as we're sort of touching on all these things. Um, and I do want to start with our Buddhist text for today, the Dhammapada. Um, now, uh, to sort of just give what little background I have to offer on this, um, the one sort of weirdly coincidental thing about all of the texts that we are studying at this point, like we've just, you know, we finished Plato's Symposium, we read a decent chunk of Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, and now, you know, here we are presented with these four texts. The weirdest part about studying all these things at this point is that they all happened probably within 200 years of one another. Like, this, the provenance of our studies, even though it's wildly divergent parts of the world, all of these texts, from the symposium all the way to, you know, uh, the text that we're talking about today, were probably written between, let's say, around 500 BCE and 300 BCE. Like, without exception, all of them were there. Um, the Nicomachean Ethics is probably on the, the recent side of that, and, um, like, even some scholars think that the Old Testament was written during that period as well, although I have major misgivings about that. Um, the Dhammapada certainly falls into this category. Like, Buddha supposedly lived and did his Buddha thing in, I believe, the 4th century or thereabouts. Um, so, the, um, the third, in the 3rd century, the Dhammapada was likely composed as, you know, something approaching a finalized text, what we have today. Um, but it's also not that clear. Um, scholars recognize that there's this fairly rich tradition that says that the Dhammapada was written by Buddha himself, um, so, which would put it considerably earlier, again, closer to, like, early 4th century, late 5th century BCE. Um, but at the same time, there's not a whole lot to corroborate that. In all likelihood, the Buddha did pass down a lot of these sayings. You'll notice that they're very aphoristic, you know, and then the oral tradition sort of carried them along, probably added some things he didn't say, probably changed some of the things that he did say, and what we end up with is the Dhammapada. Again, this sort of collection that sort of came to be in the third century or, you know, even later. Um, and then, you know, is now this finished product and considered one of the most important central texts of Buddhism. Um, but the other thing I want to stress about Buddhism is the stuff that we don't necessarily see in the Dhammapada. Um, like, there is no one text that summarizes everything about Buddhism. It, it just doesn't exist. And most of the 
Most of the most important texts, in fact, focus on very specific components of Buddhist philosophy, religion, or um, practice. Um, so again, there isn't like a one-stop shop like there is with you know the Old Testament or the New Testament, where you know all of these books tend to be compiled together. They they are all taught together, or you know there is sort of like one manuscript that is that is the source. Um, for all of your knowledge here. Like again, Buddhism grew very much out of Hinduism, which at that point was already a fairly rich tradition. Like the Upanishads, uh, the earliest of them were probably five, six hundred years old at this point. Buddha is commenting on and reacting to Hinduism. So as a consequence, in the same way that Christians assume you've read the Old Testament, Buddhists assume that you are familiar with the Hindu scriptures. Um, so again, to properly understand all of Buddhism, you not only need to tackle these specifically Buddhist texts, like the Dhammapada, like these uh, sort of other writings that are associated with it, but also to have a familiarity with the Upanishads, or uh, have a familiarity with other important Hindu scriptures. So again, it's really hard hard to summarize or like pick out one particular passage that really gets at the essence of what Buddhism is all about. Um, that said, at the same time as this is the case, Buddha himself, as this uh, tradition goes, um, argued for what are called the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, both of which are, you know, very, very streamlined versions of Buddhist scripture and Buddhist teaching. Like, it is Buddhist philosophy in a nutshell. Um, so, the main sort of thrust of the Four Noble Truths, which, you know, you'll, you'll, you can, like, find virtually anywhere, um, is that life is pain. It's like suffering is the truth of the world. You cannot get away from it. To be in the world is to suffer, and there is no sort of getting out of this. Um, and then the cause of that suffering is the self and your attachment to others and your attachment to this world. Um, therefore, the proper way to stop suffering, the proper way to stop feeling this pain of attachment with the world is to cut off one's attachment with the world. Um, like this, These are the fundamental principles of Buddhism. Life sucks, life is painful, life is suffering, we suffer because of our attachments, therefore cut off your attachments and pursue instead a life of compassion, of detachment, of sort of scholarly contemplation as most Buddhists have it. Um, this, these are the fundamental Four Noble Truths. And you can see that this very much comes out in the Dhammapada, especially the second of the two chapters that we're, we're talking about here. Um, notice, like, throughout this first chapter, chapter 15 on happiness, um, notice that it very much emphasizes sort of removing yourself away from bad influences here. So, happy indeed we live, friendly amidst the hostile, amidst hostile men we dwell free from hatred. Happy indeed we live, friendly amidst the afflicted, amidst afflicted men we dwell free from affliction. Happy indeed we live, free from avarice, happy we, indeed we live, we who possess nothing. Like, notice that this very much is repeated over and over here. And by contrast, we have things like there is no fire like lust, no crime like hatred. Um, talk about hunger and health. Like, and by contrast, the emphasis here is good is it to see the noble ones, to live with them is ever blissful. One will always be happy by not encountering fools. Um, these association with fools is how you are dragged down, how you are sort of 
mired in this muck of human experience, this sort of attachment to the world that just pains and, and afflicts you. Um, so the conclusion of this chapter is, therefore, follow the noble one who is steadfast, wise, learned, dutiful, and devout. One should follow only such a man who is truly good and discerning, even as the moon follows the path of the stars. But notice that, if anything, chapter 16 is even more explicit about this. Giving himself to things to be shunned and not exerting where exertion is needed, a seeker after pleasures having given up his true welfare envies those intent upon theirs. Seek no intimacy with the beloved, and also not with the unloved, for not to see the beloved and to see the unloved both are painful. Therefore, hold nothing dear, for separation from the dear is painful. There are no bonds for those who have nothing beloved or unloved. From endearment springs grief, we hear. From affection springs grief. From attachment springs grief. From lust springs grief. So if you cut these things off, if you cut off your endearment, affection, attachment, lust, craving, all of these things, you will cut yourself off from grief and you will cut yourself off from fear. You will be enlightened in this sense. You will have freedom in a way that people bound to this world simply do not. And I want to sort of explore this a little bit because, again, you know, it sounds great in theory and it sounds, you know, very wise on paper, but, like, th there's something eminently practical about what Buddha is teaching here or what Buddhism is teaching here if, this were, if these were not Buddha's words himself. Um, like, think about in your own life how, you know, the people who have hurt you the most tend not to be perfect strangers. Like, if somebody just comes up in, to you out of a crowd and says, like, your hair is ugly, you're probably going to dismiss it. Like, you don't know this person. You don't know what their deal is. You don't know why they care about this. This is going to be a crazy person. Like, why should you trust their judgment? But if, you know, a parent tells you the same thing, or if, you know, a close friend says that you're a bad person, you know, that hurts because you have given this person, you know, respect, attachment, you care about what they believe, what they have to say, um, and as a consequence, you take it very seriously. Um, so, you know, these kinds of betrayals, these kinds of opportunities, these vulnerabilities, as we frequently put it in our culture, you know, we praise those who say, you know, be vulnerable with the people that you love, like, put yourself out there. But the Buddhists would absolutely say the opposite. They would absolutely tell you to guard yourself. Instead, you know, prevent yourself from getting these attachments. Disconnect yourself from everything in the world that could potentially hurt you. Um, and that includes, like, friends and family, because they can betray you and they will let you down, or they will die and you will suffer when they are, are gone. Or, alternatively, things like stuff, you know, like, if you have a lot of attachment to some TV or a computer that you've put together, or if you have, you know, like a watch that you're very attached to, anything like that, these things will break. They will be destroyed. They could be stolen. Like, bad things will happen to them, and you will suffer as a consequence of having lost them. Um, so on the one hand, Buddha is saying avoid attachment to other people. On the other hand, it's definitely saying avoid attachment to worldly goods, uh, worldly benefits. And the Dhammapada is echoing this. Avoid attachment and you'll avoid grief. Avoid endearment and you'll avoid suffering and fear. Um, 
Now, this is not to say that the Buddhists are, on the whole, a bunch of cold-hearted monsters who don't care about people. Um, typically, in Buddhist philosophy, following this sort of call to give up your attachments, to, to sort of give up your connections to things, is this call to compassion. Um, this idea of a, a sort of universal affection for all things in their natural state. Um, so far as the Buddhists are talking about like cutting yourself off from attachment, cutting yourself off from, from connections, from love as we would normally phrase it, um, they're talking about it insofar as they're talking about selfish love. Um, like you want a person to behave in a certain way to benefit you and so you can connect with them. And when they don't do that, it hurts you. Uh, because you wanted this thing, you expected this thing, and then it didn't come to pass. What Buddha is instead prescribing in this idea of compassion, this sort of enlightened love or enlightened affection, is rather sort of falling in love with the world as it is, like not building ex expectations for what people are doing, but coming to appreciate them for their own sake. Um, which is an interesting concept here. Like, the Greeks have not kicked this around too terribly much. Like, Aristotle got talking about, you know, loving a friend for their own sake later on in the Nicomachean Ethics that we talked about, and I think it's a really important idea. Um, but notice that the Buddhists are also sort of kicking around this idea. Like, recognizing and taking the world for what it is, rather than trying to improve it or make it better. Um... This is kind of core to the Buddhist philosophy. Like, when you see these sorts of enlightened Buddhist monks like the Dalai Lama, um, their attitude, the, the sort of perspective that they're practicing is this idea that, you know, everything in the world is as it should be. It, and it is also detached from them. They do not have an investment in it. They're not trying to make it better or, or change it in some radical way. This is just the way that the world works. And there's beauty to be had in that. Um, it's kind of like when you're watching a TV show and there's a character who is just like relentlessly evil or relentlessly stupid. Like I think of, you know, Michael Scott from The Office. Like he is just a cringeworthy character all the time. But by the end of the show, you're sort of trained to appreciate his cringeworthy behavior. Like, you're not screaming at the top of your lungs, oh my gosh, be a better person. No, you recognize that sort of the joy of the show surrounds this immature, childlike character. Um, he's going to be who he is, and the show would be worse if he was ever anything different. And as a consequence, he doesn't change, and that's okay. Um... This is the sort of attitude that the Buddhists take towards the entire world. Haters gonna hate, trolls gonna be trolls, just let them do their thing and you can appreciate the fact that they are being who they are. That this is their natural state of affairs, that there's something, you know, harmonious about the world in its, in its current state. Um, as much as samsara, the, the sort of world of pleasure, the, the world of like, um, the world of sensory experience, as the Buddhists uh, usually understand it, that's their term, samsara, is opposed to nirvana, the state of enlightenment, the state of detachment. Um, nirvana, like from nirvana, you are safe enough from samsara that you can just sort of take joy, take pleasure in the way the affairs of the world, the busyness of people, um, which 
is kind of also not as clear-cut as it seems. Um, like, Buddhists would usually frame this as, you know, you're appreciating selfish people being selfish and stuff like this. Um, you know, people are going to be who they are, haters going to hate, again, is what it comes down to. But that also means sort of non-interference in atrocities and terrible things that are happening. Um, like, you'll know, uh, one of the famous protests during the Vietnam War is there were multiple uh, Tibetan Buddhist monks who sort of protesting the, the ongoing battles, set themselves on fire, um, like self-immolated in public, and, and died in the process. Like, they just sat there enduring the pain of, you know, burning themselves alive. This is sort of a very typically Buddhist attitude. Um, the Vietnam War was something horrible, and they recognized that it was something horrible, and they wanted to sort of express the horror of this. But notice that they did it without sort of getting political or, or getting super involved or, or making long diatribes or trying to influence us. Their response was self-directed. Um, by destroying the self, they were expressing the ways that they felt about the world destroying itself. Um, this was you know, very self-focused as far as they were concerned. Um, and I should stress here, too, that Buddhism is not a monolithic figure here. Like, one of the great dangers of talking about Buddhism in a philosophy class like this, especially when it's some idiot like me who doesn't really know what they're talking about and who is sort of just extrapolating based on, you know, what little experience they have and what little, you know, their professors have taught them in the past, um, is we kind of put Buddhism as well as most of these Eastern philosophies on this sort of inaccessible pedestal. Um, like, if I have a major frustration with the way that, like, the hippie movement brought back the Eastern philosophies and Eastern religions to, you know, the states and to the West, so to speak, it's the fact that it very much came back with rose-colored glasses. Um, they took it without the political importance, without the, you know, without the infighting. Um, like, the fact of the matter is, religion in all of its forms, just like government in all of its forms, or basically any human institution whatsoever in any of its forms, all of them have infighting, factionalism, politics. Um, and this is true about Buddhism as well. Like, as much as we're talking about Buddhism as though it's, you know, a bunch of monks who are carefully practicing these very rigorous um, sort of self uh, self-purifications or detachment from the rest of the world and society, um, I should stress that even Buddhism recognizes that that's only one part of itself. Um, Buddhism is very much divided between Hinayana or Little Raft Buddhism, and that's what kind of we're describing today, the sort of philosophical or scholarly Buddhism, the Buddhism of monks sort of practicing meditation techniques in, in far-off you know, havens in the mountains. And then on the other hand, there's Mahayana Buddhism, the sort of big raft Buddhism uh, that most Buddhists actually practice. Like if you, you know, if you were getting the, the demographics on a, on a country and it says, you know, the, the population is like 85% Buddhism, chances are that's like 1% monks in their monasteries reading the t sacred texts and, you know, meditating on nirvana. And it's like 84% just people who go home and worship Buddha as though he was a god, even though that isn't exactly how Buddhism was originally designed to be. Um, there's a lot of complicated sort of relationships between Buddhists here. Like the Tibetan Buddhists are not the same as the Chinese Buddhists are not the same as the Japanese Buddhists are not the same as like Indonesian Buddhists. Like there's so much history and so much 
you know, tradition bound up with these cultures and, and with these practices that, you know, Buddhists declare war on each other and kill each other just as readily as, as Christians do, or, you know, as Islam and Christianity have fought over the centuries. Like, this is fairly normal. Um, this is how religion works. Um, and in fact, like, there, even, you know, within the last, like, decade or so, there's actually been a lot of conflict between especially the atheist Chinese government you know, the, the Maoist communist Chinese government and Buddhist monasteries within China and in the local vicinities. Um, like, just because there are these really complicated political relationships going on. Uh, most importantly, like the Dalai Lama, who of course is, you know, this really important figure in, in Tibetan Buddhism and who has, you know, important connections to the rest of the Buddhist world. Um, there's this fairly elaborate process by which the Dalai Lama chooses the successor and like the successor is chosen. It, I, I don't understand all the nuances. Um, what I can tell you though is that that practice has kind of been stopped short by the present political situation. Um, the next Dalai Lama has been killed, if I'm not mistaken. Like the person who should have taken up the mantle. Um, or they've been completely removed from circulation and imprisoned or something as a political move. Um, it is not simple here. This is not like happiness and light and flowers. Like Buddhism too is, is racked by these sorts of problems. Um, as much as their philosophy tells them to, you know, detach themselves from worldly struggles and worldly connections from selfishness and so on and so forth. It's simply not that simple. Um, it's great on the page. So is Christianity. So is Judaism. So is virtually any religion that has had any influence on human life and human history. Um, in practice, it's always much messier than that. Um, so keep that in mind as we're talking about all of these different philosophies and perspectives, because again, it's like really easy to fall into this sort of, you know, wow, this is so wise. Why can't our religions be this wise? Like, it's not that simple. Um, you are, like, it sounds wise because it sounds different, because it sounds novel. Um, but you follow it to its home, and you will see the same sort of problems there that you will find in yours. Um, so just be aware of that as we keep on going here. Um, now, I should also mention, again, because, like, Taoism is very much my strong point here, and we're going to be talking about other sorts of you know, self-negation kind of philosophies in the near future, uh, that there are sort of degrees to be talked about in this whole Buddhist self-abnegation philosophy, this, you know, the Four Noble Truths very much prescribing, you know, since the world is pain, disconnect yourself from the world and you will be happier, you will, you know, be enlightened, you will be able to save yourself from that pain. Taoism um, is much the same. Like, Taoism was probably being, like, it, it was being formed in China at roughly the same time as Buddhism was coming into China. Like, if Buddha, in fact, lived and spoke and taught and, you know, did his bit under the Banyan tree in, like, the 5th and 6th centuries BCE, then by the time that China received it in the 3rd or possibly the 2nd century BCE, um, this was probably at about the same time as Lao Tzu was either just about to finish his career or, you know, a little after his death, before Taoism had come into its its sort of own. 
Um, and Taoism, like Buddhism, is very much a, an abstract philosophy, a sort of mental purification philosophy, um, where instead of following the Four Noble Truths and this sort of atheistic attitude towards you know, the, the hostility and, and the danger of the world, the, Tao, the Taoists instead follow the Tao, where the Tao is, you know, variously translated as the way or something akin to, like, a god of some kind. Um, it's sort of just nature in its great form. Like, it is, the Tao is described in the Tao Te Ching as being the giver of all life, as being the origin of, of heaven and the 10,000 things, that um, it is sort of this omnipresent, you know, amorphous, creative entity with feminine qualities because of its sort of generative abilities and fecundity, um, but also just personless. Like, it, it doesn't it doesn't behave the way a human does. You can't relate to it the way that, like, the Christians argue that you should relate to God or the way the Greeks are talking about, like, their various deities. Um, the Tao is not personal. It is just sort of a force, like it's translated, the way. Um, it is the order of the universe, in a sense, and by following the Tao, you sort of follow the order of the universe, and it ends up looking a lot like Buddhism, insofar as you are sort of, you know, forgetting about your ego, forgetting about what you want from the world, and instead just sort of following the way of the world in its own right. Um, but where Buddhism is very much detached and reticent to sort of get involved, um, the Taoist sage instead is is very much instructed to behave as a model. Um, like, you are supposed to give up your own desires, follow the Tao, follow your own nature, which is given to you by the Tao, um, but also to sort of present that to others as an alternative to living in the world and being attached to things and, you know, getting upset about slights and fighting over the slightest thing. Um, both of these philosophies are very similar insofar as they are essentially pacifistic, essentially, you know, like, kind of um, passive as opposed to active. Um, but where Buddhism is very much about, like, self-purification, you know, and the world be damned because it's just going to get along on its own, the, Tao, the Taoist is more about sort of raising yourself up as a perfect exemplar for everyone around you. Again, at least as I read it, it's fairly difficult to make the contrast here. Um, but it is also kind of important to bring this up, because in Chinese philosophy especially, um, at least up until, you know, communism and Maoism and so on and so forth, Chinese philosophy was very much composed of the three poles of Confucianism on the one hand, Taoism on the other, and Buddhism on the third. Um, and very much, like Chinese philosophy for most of its history has been a sort of way of mixing and matching these various ideas, making them all compatible with each other, in much the same way as uh, medieval Christians were very keen to sort of take Plato and Aristotle and make it fit with Christian scripture. Um, but we'll talk about that in the weeks to come once we get to uh, medieval philosophy and, and sort of the medieval project. Um, for our purposes, let's move on, because I do really want to talk about the Kama Sutra. Um, as much as it's, like, a weird sort of inclusion in this class, and, you know, I sort of did, like, this is, reading it for this class was the first time I'd actually ever taken a stab at the Kama Sutra. And I haven't read the whole thing, I certainly haven't, you know, looked at all the pictures at this point. Um, but... 
I was really, like, I'm literally sitting at my computer one day thinking, what kind of text should I talk about for my Eastern philosophy reading? You know, like, I definitely wanted to include some of the Dhammapada because I knew that there were relevant passages there. And I'm like, all right, what Chinese philosophy could I bring in? Should I teach the Tao Te Ching, yes or no? And then I'm like, wait, I'm teaching a class on love and friendship, and I'll bet you anything that the Kama Sutra has some really smart things to say about love and about friendship. Um, as much as, you know, it is this text that is sort of infamous for talking very explicitly about sexuality, I was willing to bet that that wasn't all it was. And in fact, you know, given my knowledge of Hinduism and of Hindu philosophy, and, you know, just what a sutra actually tends to be, uh, I figured there would probably be just as much philosophy as very explicit sexual discussion. And it didn't take me long to figure out that that was absolutely right. Um, the passages that we're reading here, like it says chapter 2, chapter 1 is technically the table of contents. So this is very much the very beginning of the Kama Sutra. Um, and I wanted to very much include this because... First off, it dispels a lot of the sort of assumptions that we have about the Kama Sutra, that it's this forbidden book about, you know, sexuality and positions and pleasure and so on and so forth. Um, I really wanted to sort of drive home the fact that, no, it's actually really meditative and really insightful and very philosophical about pleasure and love and, you know, all of this stuff in a way that absolutely dovetails and fits with our class uh, and its readings. Um, and I also wanted to sort of stress, you know, what it actually has to say. What is its attitude? Because as much as, you know, we've been reading the Greeks and we're, we're, reading, we're going to be reading the Romans in the, in the next couple of weeks uh, and we're going to get into Christianity, like, the Western tradition, as much as it has been, you know, sex-friendly, I guess I want to say, it hasn't really been sex-positive. You know, the Old Testament, as much as I stress that, like, it, it isn't coming down hard on sex. Like, obviously, Adam and Eve had sex in the Garden of Eden. And, you know, sexuality is very prevalent throughout the Old Testament with very little judgment besides these sort of hard, fast rules. Thou shalt not commit adultery. You shall not lie with your father's wife. Like, you shall not lie with another man as with a woman. Like, all of the, the Old Testament discussion of sex typically has to do with prohibition don't do this, don't do that, don't do this. Yes, this is acceptable behavior, but only within certain narrow limits. Likewise, as much as Plato and Aristotle seem to be sex positive, they also seem to be very quick to sort of make sex and sexuality and erotic friendships and erotic love sort of subordinate to higher ideas. Uh, like, Plato is very significantly stressing in that whole speech with Diatima that, like, yes, falling in love with another man is a good idea and will help you to see through to the next stage of one's development. But at the end of the day, love is, is specifically about seeing capital B beauty, this transcendent ideal, um, and not about, like, actually caring about another person. Um, like, even Aristotle, as much as he's talking about, you know, the friendships of pleasure and how, you know, friends can, in fact, bring pleasure to each other, they're always sort of overshadowed by these ideas of friendships of virtue, friendships that are, you know, essentially non-sexual, non-pleasure oriented, um, and at the end of the day, function much better because they're geared towards a much higher goal. Um, 
one of the things that I really appreciate about the Kama Sutra is that it is sort of unabashedly sex positive. Um, and not in like some prurient or, or sort of you know, inflammatory or deliberately titillating way. Like it's very frank about you know, its attitudes towards sex. And like even its defense here in chapter two um, on the acquisition of Dharma, Artha, and Kama, like all of these objections and answers, you know, most of them are geared towards like, oh, people say that pleasure is bad for you or that it's low or, you know, it's not nearly as, as honorable as gaining sort of religious insight or even gaining wealth and power. And by contrast, you know, Vadasyana is keep is constantly be is constantly responding, no. No, sexual intercourse is a good thing. No, pleasure is a good thing. Kama in all of its forms is an important part of the human experience and to deny it is not healthy or at the very least not natural. Um, and notice that in all likelihood he's responding to Buddha as well. The Kama Sutra, as much as it is also sort of ambiguous and, and nobody knows exactly where it came from, um, it is probably one of our later texts um, the composition tends to, or mo most scholars tend to think that it was written in like AD, CE, so like between 400 and 200 uh, CE rather than like 500 BCE, like most of the other texts we're talking about today. So we're talking about a text that is like six, seven hundred years older than anything else we've written, we've read at this point. It is the re most recent of everything. Um, but at the same time, like, Nobody knows, and in all likelihood it is drawing from the Upanishads, and, and some scholars do think it might have been dated back as far as, as early as like 400 or 300 BCE, which would make it contemporaneous with the latest um, of the texts that we're talking about here. Um, like, it's all over the place. It isn't clear. It may very well have been compiled from a variety of different texts. Vadasiana may only have been one of the many writers of it. Like, it's complicated. Um, for all of that, it seems most likely that it is responding to the sort of religious Hinduism and Buddhism especially that are specifically going out of their way to reject pleasures of the flesh, saying that that's merely samsara and therefore you know, not worthy of being studied or pursued. Um, notice that again, the text is very sort of directly contradicting this. Like, notice those four objections. Some learned men say that as dharma is connected with things not belonging to this world, it is appropriately treated of in a book, and so also is artha, because it is practiced only by the application of proper means. But kama being a thing that is practiced even by the brute creation, and which is to be found everywhere, does not want any work on the subject. Like, this is too ugly and gross and brutish to be written about. That's essentially what it's saying here. And it's something that we're actually going to hear fairly frequently in this class. Um, like Foucault was talking about with the repressive hypothesis, you know, in the 18th century when all of these scholars are just starting to be very open about like the, the anatomy and the psychology of sexuality, they're always prefacing their books with like, yes, I know that this is gross and I know that this is beneath us, but at the same time we do have to talk about this. And Foucault was specifically emphasizing, you know, why do they keep hedging? Why do they keep mentioning this? Vadasiana does not. Like, Vadasiana knows that there are all these people out there who, you know, are against talking about this in, in some scholarly or, or written format, that, like, somehow books are too good to talk about sex. Uh, but Vadasiana 
rejects this. This is not so, he answers. Sexual intercourse being a thing dependent on man and woman requires the application of proper means by them, and those means are to be learned from the Kama Shastra. You need to train sexuality, he's saying, in the same way that you need to train any, anything else. There is good and bad sex in the world. It isn't just a matter of like, well, everybody's born knowing, knowing how to do it, and you know nothing more needs to be trained. Like, that's not the way that Vadasyana sees it here, um, which I think is really interesting. Like, it's very at odds with basically everything else we've read so far. Like, even Plato, you know, as much as, as uh, Socrates and Alcibiades are presented at the end of the symposium, like, with Alcibiades being this incredibly attractive, handsome dude, and yet Socrates is apparently, like, perfectly knowledgeable about how to pleasure other people and like people are just throwing themselves at his feet um it's all sort of presented without any explanation like he just knows how to be sexy i don't know what the deal is with socrates you'd have to ask him um like the greeks probably are assuming that by being beautiful by being intelligent that makes you a good lover and that's all there is to it like the two probably come together the same way as the greeks kind of assume that if you're ugly then you're probably a bad person and if you're pretty then you're probably a good person but vadasiana does not make that assumption instead he's very much stressing you know being good at pleasure and we're talking about sex as well as just you know making people happy like in a broad sense involves training um it is not that simple it requires education it requires study um and it is a worthwhile thing to study he stresses um so you know let's back up a little bit because i do want to talk about the sort of divisions here as well um again like i did include the notes that i sort of wrote down about the the burton translation here because it is rather salacious in its own right like seriously francis burton was this 19th century translator he was like an ex-soldier who had been posted um in the the british occupation of india and upon coming back from india he brought like a whole bunch of manuscripts and stuff and, and he you know would go back and forth several times and sort of like study these these texts and, and translate them into you know 19th century english um largely for the purposes of just getting as much money as possible from sex starved londoners who really wanted just you know who were very horny and did not have any way of expressing it because victorian sort of rules about sexuality were so restrictive um it's complicated. We will probably talk about that more when we actually get to the 19th century and we start talking about the historical factors involved here. Um, suffice it to say that Burton is simultaneously, like, you know, kind of a decent person. Like, he was actually fairly active in opposing the most restrictive British practices at the time, while also totally and unembarrassedly profiting off of cultural appropriation. Like, all of this is true, he is a very complicated figure, and I'm not going to sit here and be like, that dude was an asshole, or that dude was a hero. Like, he was both. He absolutely could be both, and that's fine. Like, history is way more complicated than just being able to sort of, like, quote, cancel various historical figures for what they did or did not do. Um, 
Burton is one of those complicated figures. He was a liberal in his time. He opposed tyrannical policies in his time. He was also very much a con man and, a sh and like a, a, tri a tricky guy who, you know, was just looking to make a buck any way that he could. Um, and you know, could he recognized that you could absolutely do that by introducing, you know totally different attitudes towards sexuality and pleasure to people who, you know, were themselves craving this stuff um, for reasons that are fairly complicated. Um, but keep in mind as we're reading this that there probably is a bias as a consequence. Um, like, there are more recent translations of the Kama Sutra. Not a whole lot of them, though, weirdly. Like, I, I did a little research at, in sort of preparing today's lecture and preparing today's reading, uh, and I did stumble across a couple of other alternative translations of the Kama Sutra into English, most of which were really recent, like last 10, 15 years recent. Um, so apparently all those damn hippies were still using Burton's translation, go figure. Like, they, they were never terribly discerning about their scholarship, those hippies. Um, but at the same time, like, um, they're... I think we as a culture are not interested in the truth of the Eastern philosophy that is being put on, like, is being presented to us here. Like, we only care about the Kama Sutra because of its forbiddenness, because of you know, the, the heritage that Burton has wrapped up with it. Um, I would really like, at some point, now that I've sort of, you know, dipped my toes into the water here, to actually read the Kama Sutra in its entirety, preferably without Burton's bias and slight over things. Um, but for our purposes, keep in mind that I did use the Burton translation. It was by far the easiest to get a hold of. Um, and because I did kind of want to have this conversation about, like, the whole historical sort of situation in which it was composed, and also because I kind of wanted to have a conversation about scholarship. Um, like, let's just blow this out a little bit here. Um, every text we've read so far in this class has been translated. Um, like, we've kind of been quiet about the translators. I've mentioned them here and there in passing. Um, like, you'll notice that I specifically mentioned in, in our Old Testament reading that I was pulling from the East, the English Standard Version of the Bible, which is a fairly recent, uh, fairly modern translation that I'm pretty fond of when it comes to teaching this stuff in classes. Um, our translation of, of Plato I specifically picked out because it was more accessible than the, the free one that was available online. Um, like, we didn't talk much about the translation of Aristotle, but it is in fact translated. It is in fact a very reputable translation. And these texts are obviously all translated as well. Like, I've included the translator information um, for every single one of the ones that I've included. But I want to stress here, translations are not perfect. They never are. And as much as there are conversations to be had in scholarly circles about what are what makes a better translation versus what makes a worse translation, most of the time it's really not that simple. It's really not that cut and dry. Uh, like to give you an example of sort of just how translations work in my own life, and you know the sort of like crazy stuff that can circulate around the discussion surrounding these translations. Like, one of my favorite writers ever is Fyodor Dostoevsky. He's this 19th century Russian author. He's the guy who wrote Crime and Punishment and Brothers Karamazov. Like, if you go on my website, you'll find, you know, various 
times that I've like talked about his his writings in, in various circumstances, and I will always say that like I love this guy dearly, and he's amazing. Um, but one of uh, I very much got hooked on Dostoevsky because at the same time as I was growing up and I was in high school, um, this husband and wife team, Richard Pevier and Larissa Volokonsky, were working together to translate all of Dostoevsky's work from Russian into English. And they were making a very dynamic translation. That is to say, it was very up-to-date using contemporary English phrase and, and vernacular. Um, it was like intentionally more exciting. It was like an attempt to update not just Dostoevsky's prose, but like prose at the time to more 20th century conventions. Uh, more recently, I've read quite a bit on the subject of pushing back against Peter Volokonsky and sort of arguing that Dostoevsky, you know, is best translated by another 19th century writer, um, like the original translator of all of, you know, Dostoevsky's prose, Constance Garnett. And I've read Constance Garnett's translations, and they're fine. Like, I don't get as much out of them as I do with Peter and Volokonsky. But notice that, again, as much as I would say that Peter and Volokonsky are a, quote, better translation, what I'm saying when I say that is that it more adapts to my kind of English. Whereas the opponents to my view are absolutely arguing that it's best to go from 19th century Russian to 19th century English, that that's the better way to capture that mindset. That's complicated. Like, there's a lot of discussion. Whenever I pick out, you know, text for my mythology classes, for example, I'm always thinking about, you know, should I be picking a translation that preserves, you know, the ancientness, the foreignness, the oldness of the original Greek, of the original text that we're talking about, or should I look for something that is more updated, that is more modern, contemporary, that reads the way like a, a James Patterson novel would, rather than the way that, you know, like Alexander Pope translating the, the Iliad and the Odyssey back in the 16th century. Um, like, that's a tricky conversation to have, and it's not one that is simply solved. What I want to stress for our class, though, is that keep in mind that everybody, including the translators, have an agenda, and you will not see a one-to-one -one translation. That's just not how languages work. There is no one-to-one -one move here. Um, there's this famous phrase from, I believe, the Latin or the Italian, uh, trattore tradutiore, which is to say that the translator is always a traitor. He always betrays the text that he's translating, specifically because you can never capture the essence. Like, you can't get all of it at once. Um, translations of poetry will occasionally render the, the uh, original text into prose because they'd rather capture the meaning than the you know, rhythms or rhyme scheme. Whereas others will try and capture the rhyme scheme and the rhythm and the poetry, but also do a little bit of violence to the actual prose, like what is actually being said or the meaning in some cases. It's a really difficult thing to do. So when I say that you know we have to be a little bit untrustworthy of Burton, I want to sort of stress that we have to be a little untrustworthy to all scholars engaging in translations. Like, yes, they know this stuff way better than we do. Like, I trust Burton way more than I trust myself to translate from, you know, Hindu or Sanskrit or whatever this is originally written in. Like, 
but I can't make heads or tails out of those languages. Like, I've never studied them. Um, but we have to rely on Burton as a consequence, and that's a little bit dangerous. Um, ideally, if, we, if you were actually going to sit down and study the Kama Sutra, you would have all of your original languages studied, and you would have multiple translations at your disposal, and you would have multiple commentators, some in the original languages, to sort of talk about it and sort of give you a better idea of what you were doing with. Until you have that, you are going to have an imperfect knowledge of these texts. And the thing that I want to most stress, because we are dealing with Burton's translation of the Kama Sutra, is that Burton has an agenda here. Namely, he's going to try and sell sex to, you know, horny Londoners, which means he's going to be playing up all the salacious bits way more than he's going to be playing up the dry, dusty philosophy, um, which again is probably why for, you know, the last... 150 years or so, we have been thinking of this text as being totally about sex and only secondarily about anything else. Whereas it is, from the Hindu perspective, primarily about the other things and only secondarily about sex. Um, so keep that in mind as we read, that I suspect that Burton has embellished certain things, has specifically translated with a sort of sexual or pleasure bent words that may not necessarily go in that direction. Um, I think it helps that I've specifically chosen passages that kind of de-emphasize the sexual elements in most cases, but it's not that simple. Um, so let's start by looking at these three terms that are sort of bandied about here at the beginning of chapter two. Dharma, Artha, and Kama. Um, and notice, you know, the way that this is even presented to us contextually. Man, the period of whose life is 100 years, should practice Dharma, Artha, and Kama at different times, and in such a manner that they may harmonize together and not clash in any way. He should acquire learning in his childhood. In his youth and middle age, he should attend to Artha and Kama, and in his old age, he should perform Dharma and thus seek to gain moksha, that is, release from further transmigration. Or, on account of the uncertainty of life, he may practice them at times when they are enjoined to be practiced. But one thing is to be noted, he should lead the life of a religious student until he finishes his education. So, notice the initial sort of, the initial context that we're presented with here. Humans are meant to practice certain philosophical aspects of Hinduism, certain sort of um, responsibilities and certain attitudes towards the world at different times during their life. This is actually really striking by contrast to, you know, Buddhist teaching or Taoist teaching or Confucianist teaching, which is very much like, yes, eschew all worldly pleasures and only pursue, you know, enlightenment or, or you know, the, the Tao and, you know, that for all of your life, because that is for the best. Like, instead, Vatasyana is very much stressing that, you know, there's a time and place for all of this. There's a time to seek wealth, and there's a time to seek pleasure, and there's a time to seek meditation and enlightenment. All in its proper time is what's very much being emphasized here. Um, but notice, too, what these three ideas are. Dharma is obedience to the command of the Shastra, or holy writ of the Hindus, to do certain things, such as the performance of sacrifices, which are generally not done because they do not belong to this world, and produce no visible effect. Artha is the acquisition of arts, land, gold, cattle, wealth, equipages, and friends. It is further the protection of what is acquired, and the increase of what is protected. And then Kama is the enjoyment of appropriate objects by the five senses of hearing, feeling, seeing, tasting, and smelling, assisted by the mind together with the soul. So notice the distinction here. 
On the one hand, we have Dharma, which sounds like everything the Buddhists are talking about. Like, not exactly the same because, you know, the Hindus do believe different things than the Buddhists, and obviously the Buddhists are not performing sacrifices because they don't believe in gods. You know, unless we're talking about Mahayana Buddhism and later Buddhism, and we're already over our heads. Dharma is worship. Dharma is religion in some sense. And it is essentially kind of meditative and quiet and studied and usually involves like practicing certain religious behaviors like fasting or making sacrifices. Um, and you'll notice that Vadasyana comments here, um, it is not of this world and therefore most people don't do it. Like, this is still presented as though Dharma is this ideal to aspire to, but not one that everybody is equipped to handle. Like, it is a lot of responsibility with very little payoff, and as a consequence, it's not popular, as you would expect. Like, any discipline that tells you, you know, sacrifice your cows, or sacrifice your grain, or take your wealth and put it on a fire, or give it to a priest, is generally not going to go over nearly as well as a philosophy or religion that says, hey, keep your stuff and enjoy them. Like, obviously that tends to be a more popular approach, because it's more immediately edifying and gratifying. Um... But notice that this is not the only way of things, and if anything, Vadasyana is emphasizing Dharma is something for later in life, when you are seeking to gain moksha, i.e. you want to end your cycle of reincarnation. Um, Dharma is something to aspire to, yes, but you can also put it off for a while without any harm to yourself. Um, one of the texts that I think is actually really good at, at sort of demonstrating this, and which I've read fairly recently, um, is the Japanese novel, The Tale of Genji, um, which as much as it's not at all interested in Hinduism, it's, it's very much more geared from like the Japanese perspective of Shinto, along with sort of the Buddhist layer on top of it. Um, it very much gets this, because Genji specifically like spends the first three quarters of the book like just having sex and being gorgeous and enjoying life and you know hanging out in the, with the cherry blossoms and, and just like being a gorgeous young man with this sort of idea in the back of his mind that you know once he gets older he's going to you know give up all of this dedicate his life to becoming a Buddhist monk and then retire to a monastery and live out his days there at which point he'll die and it'll be good because he'll sort of like be able to be enlightened and, and sort of transcend this worldly existence and then in the last quarter of the book that's exactly what he does like things go badly for him he you know arranges to have his affairs taken care of by his protege and then he takes off and he lives in the monastery and dies just as planned this is what's being described here uh, Vadasyana is suggesting this is the natural way for life to go. When you are young, you receive an education. You become learned about things. You, you know, learn all of the skills that you're going to need to survive in all three of these dimensions, in Dharma, in Artha, and in Kama. Um, you're going to learn to pleasure yourself and others at the same time as you're going to learn to, you know, get wealth and get you know, goods and, and financial success and repute, and you're going to learn how to perform the sacrifices, but you're not going to worry about that for a while because you're just a kid. Um, when you grow out of this, when you become a young man, when you, you know, enter middle age and all that, you know, you're going to simultaneously be trying to get stuff for yourself, you know, make your way in the world, practice Artha, this acquisition thing, and also practice Kama, also enjoy pleasure, also, you know, take advantage of those pleasures. Only in old age will you turn your attention 100% to Dharma. 
and that is appropriate as Vatasyana sees it. So there is a time for acquisitiveness. There is a time for, you know, being a wealthy businessman, for, you know, learning how to, you know, trade effectively and, and to sort of like play markets and, and learn how to sort of make bonds and pacts with people to your mutual profit. You know, just as Aristotle is talking about in the in the Nicomachean Ethics, you know, there's there's a place and for pleasures of friendship. It's necessary in order to, you know, have a social existence in ancient Greece. Vatasiana is saying, you know, yeah, it's necessary to be a participant in the economy, like to get wealth for yourself, to build a house for yourself, to get married, to do all the things that people do. There's nothing shameful about this. There's nothing wrong. And Kama is a part of this. Um, Notice, too, that uh, Vatasyana is not at all judgmental about literally any part of this process. Like, it's probably most obvious in the last section where he's talking about, like, the various reasons why you might want to bed a woman who otherwise wouldn't be, you know, accessible to you. And he's including all these crazy examples, like, you're trying to scheme against her husband or something. And he's just like, yeah, that's a good reason. Like, that's fine. You can do that. That's a, that's a pretty decent reason to, you know. Like, what? The, no ethical judgment here? No coming down hard? Like, how dare you? No, thou shalt not commit adultery. Or no, you shouldn't be murdering people. Like, no, Vadasiana has no judgment here. This is apparently all part of the game. This is all part of the process. This is all part of what the Buddhists would call samsara, the play of Brahma. Like, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is how the world works. And if you're going to sleep with someone to get ahead, cool. Go for it. Go nuts. All part of Kama. Um, but we'll get back to that. Um, what I want to very much emphasize here is this idea that Kama isn't shameful that love, sexuality, all of this is to be celebrated and not denigrated. Um, this is one of the few texts in all of her readings, all of, of this semester, that's actually going to be brazen enough to say this. And I know that that's mind-boggling. Like, as much as, you know, there have been all of these dramatic shifts in the way that love and sexuality have been viewed over the course of, you know, literally millennia of Western history, they all tend to riff on various levels of sex is shameful or sex is powerful and dangerous or sex will, you know, mess with your head. Like, the most sex-positive attitudes tend to instead elevate sex from being purely physical and pleasurable to something transcendent and great, like we're going to see with Dante or the way that Plato's talking about it um, with diatima. Like, it becomes bigger than maybe it should. Um, but even in the 20th century, when you have all of these people who are like, sex positive, let's not attach sex to love and all that stuff, there is at the same time this sort of counter movement, like, it's complicated. Um, it is constantly bound up with shame and, and sort of like guilt and just all sorts of complexity in that way. Like Foucault, as much as he's trying to argue in some of his essays for, you know, new pleasures, new sort of joys in life, he's not trying to dissociate sex from shame. Like he doesn't think that's something that we can do. He thinks that's just a part of the process and also a part of how pleasure is generated from sexuality. And you know, Warner, who is going to be kind of our other reading when we get into queer theory, is gonna agree with this almost wholeheartedly. 
Like, yes, shame is a part of the process, and you have to embrace your shame, not fight it, not overcome it. Um, which, again, like, compared to what Vadasyana is saying here, there is zero shame on this page at all. Like, this is as shameless about sex as we saw in the Old Testament in Genesis 2, where it says that they were naked and unashamed. Like, shame seems to be so built into the fabric of sexuality, and yet these are the only two times that we're really going to see them separated. Sex without shame. Bodies without shame. Nakedness without shame. Um, and notice especially here um, the fourth objection in this first chapter. Those who are inclined to think that Artha is the chief object to be obtained argue thus. Pleasures should not be sought for because they are obstacles to the practice of Dharma and Artha, which are both superior to them and are also disliked by meritorious persons. Now, Vadasyana has said earlier on in the text that when all three, Dharma, Artha, and Kama, are compared, it is always said that Dharma is better than Artha and Artha is better than Kama. So Kama is always the least of the three. It is the, the most sort of um, objectionable. But with that in mind, he, you know, he doesn't disagree with this assessment that Kama is the weakest of the three, the least of the three, the least important, or perhaps the, the most objectionable of the three. But at the same time, he is very resistant to this idea that Kama doesn't deserve a place there. That because Artha is better than Kama, it's best to reject Kama and only practice Artha, as is being presented here. Um, Notice as he goes on with this objection, pleasures also bring a man into distress and into contact with low persons. They cause him to commit unrighteous deeds and produce impurity in him. They make him regardless of the future and encourage carelessness and levity. And lastly, they cause him to be disbelieved by all, received by none, and despised by everybody, including himself. Notice what he's describing here is essentially shame. Like, People who are pursuing pleasure frequently end up in trouble as a consequence of their pleasure. They end up you know, disliked or despised because of their pleasure. They end up publicly shamed by their pleasure. And as a consequence, people do not take them seriously. So all of these people, it would seem rightly, suggest that you should avoid pleasure. It is dangerous. It will get in the way of your other and more important pursuits, namely Artha and Dharma. On the one hand, you know, acquiring wealth, acquiring success. On the other hand, religious purification and so on. But notice the answer. This objection cannot be sustained. For pleasures being as necessary for the existence and well-being of the body as food are consequently equally required. They are, moreover, the results of Dharma and Artha. Pleasures are, therefore, to be followed with moderation and caution. No one refrains from cooking food because there are beggars to ask for it, or from sowing seed because they are dear to destroy the corn when it is grown up. Thus, a man practicing Dharma, Artha, and Kama enjoys happiness, both in this world and in the world to come. The good perform those actions in which there is no fear as to what is to result from them in the next world, and in which there is no danger to their welfare. Any action which conduces to the practice of Dharma, Artha, and Kama together, or of any two or even one of them, should be performed. But an action which conduces to the practice of one of them at the expense of the remaining two should not. There's the key here for Vadasyana. Kama in itself isn't a bad thing. 
practice with caution, practiced in moderation, sexual pleasure or pleasure of any kind, because again, remember his definition of comma, you know, any pleasure of the, any of the five senses, sex is not the only one on the table. All of that is fine. All of that is good and good for us. We need pleasure like we need air, water, food. It is an essential component of our life in this world. And there is nothing shameful about it. The trick, Vadasiana says, is to do it right. To practice kama not at the expense of artha and dharma, even though that's the way it usually works out, but to practice it for itself and with the others without working to the expense of one of them. That's the key. Practice kama well. Which, notice, that's what this book is all about. Like, that's the whole point here. Remember, you know, in Objection 1, he emphasizes, no, we're supposed to teach about sexuality. We're supposed to teach comma because it's about proper means. If you do sex well, you won't do it at the expense of Dharma or Artha. If you do comma well, it won't be a problem in your life. It won't cause you to lose the things that you've gained. But you need training in order to be able to do it well. Like, in our culture nowadays, we have this very huge blind spot about sexuality, like practiced in all corners. You know, we refuse to let our children see sexually explicit material. We don't want to have the conversation about sex. We consider it this hugely awkward thing that parents have to talk to their kids about sexuality. Like, we have this whole, these... We frequently have legislation that says we can only talk about sex in certain ways in school. Like, all of this work, all of this effort, like Foucault was talking about, dedicated to talking about sexuality and surveying our children in the subject of sexuality, but specifically restraining them, withholding them from learning anything about it. What Vadasiana is saying is that sort of attitude will lead exactly to the sort of bad behavior that destroys people. Sex isn't bad because it destroys all of these things. These things are destroyed because we are bad at sex, because we are bad at pleasure, because we are bad at comma. If we were better trained, if we better understood it, if we better controlled it, and I don't mean control in the sense of repression, I mean control in the sense of, you know, like in the same way that a really good painter or a really good musician can produce a much higher effect than someone who is bad at those skills. Likewise, if somebody is really good at pleasure, at comma, at sex, they will produce a much better effect. They will be an artist of pleasure. And that would be way better than someone who clumsily makes a huge mistake and therefore embarrasses themselves and destroys their credibility. That's essentially what Vadasyana is saying here. That's the case he's making at the very beginning of this text to justify this text's existence. You've got to do better. If you are going to treat sex as though it is as low as dogs running in the street, then all you will be able to get out of sex is dogs running in the street. And you will necessarily be as ridiculous when you do it, as well as, as poor in your execution. Good comma requires training, requires careful thinking about it, requires, again, that control, that ability. It's more than just something natural or instinctual. And notice, too, like immediately in the, in the next chapter on the arts and sciences to be studied, he's talking about not just 
Kama Sutra as a study for you know young men because they're the ones who get educated. Um, but she, he's also arguing yes, and women too. Like even young maids should study this Kama Sutra along with its arts and sciences before marriage, and after it they should continue to do so with the consent of their husbands. And in fact. Like, he points out, here some learned men object and say that females, not being allowed to study any science, should not study the Kama Sutra. But Vatasyana is of the opinion that this objection does not hold good. For women already know the practice of Kama Sutra, and that practice is derived from the Kama Shastra, or the science of Kama itself. Shastra here just means science, like practical knowledge. Um, so, you know, by experience, they figure out, like, how to do Kama. But again, imperfectly, the Kama Sutra, the book on pleasure, is supposed to augment the Kama Shastra, the sort of study and experience of pleasure. Hinduism is very hands-on. Their Shastras and their Sutras are supposed to hang out together. But I should also point out for the record, just because it is kind of amusing, that Burton called his fictional society that disseminated these texts the Kama Shastra Society, which fairly strongly indicates that like, he had no you know, pretensions and were, was in fact calling his society the study of pleasure. Like, just side note there. You know, it's very easy to sort of get that past the censors when you know, it, it's under the auspices of being an intelligent society of learned scientists studying ancient Hindu folklore and religions. Like, it's kind of devious. Again, like at the same time as you kind of got to hate Burton for the cultural appropriation, you kind of got to admire him for being like a contemporary pirate in his own right. Like, just that guy. Um, but notice that Vadasyana is also emphasizing, yes, teach this to men, and yes, teach this to women. Like, this text is really weird if you read it from the perspective of contemporary feminism. You'll come to all sorts of weird conclusions, which is yet another reason why I highly recommend you leave your cultural assumptions at the door. What I want to emphasize here is that as far as Vadasyana seems to be concerned, women seem to be the primary shareholders in the study of Kama. Um, like, as much as the Kama Sutra is meant to be this book dedicated to men and the understanding of pleasure and the understanding of, like, how to derive pleasure from the world around us, Vatasyana is very clearly sort of pointing at women and saying, this is where most of that education is going to take place. And he seems to be preoccupied with that. Like, we don't see here, you know, make sure to teach men folk how to how to do pleasure in certain circumstances and here are the people who are supposed to teach them and here's the schools in which they're supposed to learn and here are the things, here's the order that you're supposed to teach them. But notice that here, like, we get this long passage about how women should learn the Kama Sutra by studying its practice from some confidential friend, like a nurse or a daughter or a mother or, or not, not a mother, like an aunt, um, a female friend, a servant, a beggar. Like, Vadasyana is very concerned with this. Women should absolutely study this, perhaps even more than men should, even though at this point in history, with these cultural circumstances, the Hindus are actually really sort of restrictive about what women can learn, read, study, etc. Vatasyana is like, forget that nonsense. Get them in there. Teach them this book. Um, now again, reading it from our feminist perspective, we might very well come to the conclusion of like, oh, well, how come they get to learn the pleasure book, but not any of the religious books? Mm -hmm. And it's true. Like, absolutely, the Hindu society was 
rather you know restrictive about women's participation in what are very clearly in this text and elsewhere considered the higher intellectual pursuits that definitely is kind of keeping women down we'll talk about that more when we get to wallstonecraft and her very incisive takedown of this sort of dual virtue like women have one set of virtues and men have another and the two do not meet um so we will get there um but i do also want to stress that you know Vadasiana clearly has very high respect for women through this text. Even the, quote, public women that he's talking about, which at least, like, this seems to be a fairly cultural thing that I don't actually know what the, the sort of talk is about, but it seems to be presented as though they are prostitutes um, in some capacity. Like, public women seems to refer to women who are readily accessible to the public. But notice that also there seem to be some women who are of high caste like nobly born but are also to be used as public women like if they have been married multiple times if multiple people have had them like that's the way that um Vatisiana seems to proceed with this so it's very unclear exactly what public women are meant to or are kind of referring to here but suffice it to say whatever they are like if they are prostitutes if they are women of loose morals as you know the victorians would have called it vadasiana is not judgmental of them either if anything he seems to think that they're kind of the best people to talk to about kama um, he brings them up frequently here stresses that they are an important part of society emphasizes their role um, in the teaching of Kama as sort of experts in this practice. Notice what this is suggesting about Hindu society, like that everyone has their role to play. And yes, some roles are higher than others. Again, this is a strictly caste-driven society where nobility have very clear-cut privileges that other castes simply do not. And, you know, Vatasyana is very quick to say, yeah, you do not mess with women of the other castes. Like, you do not go above your station, though you can go below purely in search for pleasure. Um, and this is all apparently acceptable. And again, there might be some classist notions here. By all means, bring your Marxist critique. But again, like, the culture is so radically different from our own that I'm very hesitant to think that any of our boxes or categories apply here. At the end of the day, Vadasyana is, again, not judgmental. He is not repressing these people through this text. If anything, he is stressing that their role is as important or more important than a lot of the roles that we typically heap honor upon, all those priests and monks and so on who are supposedly you know, attaining to enlightenment. Um, and notice, too, the Kama Sutra is not all by itself. Like, notice that we get in Chapter 3 this list of 64 other things that people should be taught in addition to the Kama Sutra for the gaining of pleasure. Like, this is not just about sex. The Kama Sutra isn't just about sex, and Kama itself is just not about sex. Like, and this is a heck of a list. Like, we get lots of things that you might anticipate, like, that totally would fit in a 19th century drawing room, like singing or dancing or playing on musical instruments. But also, like, magic is on this list. Um, like, architecture is on this list, chemistry is on this list, like, just playing games with words, like, poetry is on this list, like, sports, gymnastics, even knowledge of the art of war of arms and armies is number 58. Like, clearly this is a huge array of different things that you should be good at. Um, and again, just as, 
you know, we literally just finished that paragraph about how women should be learning the Kama Sutra. It's hard not to associate all of these skills and abilities with women. Um, that what Vanasyana is essentially saying here is, yes, women should be very well versed in the arts of pleasure. That obviously includes the sexual dimensions of the Kama Sutra, but it also very clearly in includes all the non-sexual dimensions of the Kama Sutra. Like I didn't include chapter four, but it's literally just a book on interior decorating, like how you're supposed to organize your household, how to receive friends, how to host a party. Like that's chapter four. Um, I skipped it, but I definitely want to talk about what it was like because it's so it's so indicative of what this book is actually interested in talking about, that sex really is the secondary interest. And at the end of the day, this is really about pleasure in all its forms, including sexuality, which is not to be shamed, which is not to be, you know, fretted about. But if women are going to be learned or taught about sex, they should also be taught how to write, how to draw, how to recite poetry, how to, you know, apparently engage in architecture, chemistry, and strategy. Like, this, and he, you know, if it isn't entirely clear from the context before, it's very clear from the context afterward. You get these 64 items, including such wild things as cockfighting, flower carriages, and gambling, and we are immediately told a public woman endowed with a good disposition, beauty, and other winning qualities, and also versed in the above arts, obtains the name of a Ganika, or public woman of high quality, and receives a seat of honor in an assemblage of men. She is, moreover, always respected by the king and praised by learned men, and her favor being sought for by all, she becomes an object of universal regard. Notice the emphasis there. Like, she sits beside the king. Like, she is respected, profoundly respected, and it's immediately emphasized afterward the daughter of a king too, as well as the daughter of a minister being learned in the above arts can make their husbands favorable. Like, there is incredible power and authority and influence to be had if you can master these arts, if you can do them properly. And again, without destroying yourself in the process. Like, the whole thing about, you know, like we talked about, pleasure leading one to destruction, you know, leading you to lose your wealth or your, your religious standing. Vadasyana is stressing that's because you're doing it wrong. Like, a man or a woman who possesses these skills, who possesses this knowledge, this expertise, is as important to society as the king himself. Now, Chapter 5 is wild, and I do want to sort of like touch on it, although we very much are running out of time here, which is a bummer because there's so many interesting things to talk about here. Um, chapter 5 is just crazy. Like, notice the, the sort of introduction here. When Kama is practiced by men of the four castes according to the rules of the Holy Writ, i.e. by lawful marriage with virgins of their own caste, it then becomes a means of acquiring lawful progeny and good fame, and it is not opposed to the customs of the world. Um, on the contrary, the practice of Kama with women of the higher castes and with those previously enjoyed by others, even though they be of the same caste, is prohibited. But the practice of Kama with women of the lower castes, with women excommunicated from their own caste, with public women, and with women twice married, is neither enjoined nor prohibited. The object of practicing Kama with such women is pleasure only. Now, again, I do not know about the sexual politics here. I do not know about the classism that could potentially be, like, loaded in here or the, you know, potential misogyny. Like, I don't know. This is not my area of expertise. I have not studied, you know, like, ancient uh, Hindu culture or any of this. 
Um, but I do want to emphasize a couple of things here. That as much as there are apparently these fairly strict caste structure rules that Vadasiana is lying out here, and it's like marriage is supposed to operate within the same caste between a man and a virgin. Um, you should not seek out women from higher caste, but it is totally okay to, to you know, apparently take advantage of the lower classes with taking advantage of putting in very heavy-duty quotes because I don't know whether it means taking advantage of in the sense of, like, hey, there is, you know, plenty of people out here, by all means, go nuts, have fun, um, or alternatively, like, really taking advantage, like, I am the Lord, you do what I say kind of thing. Again, not sure. You know, like, the lines there are fairly ambiguous. Um, but notice, too, that the Nayakas, as he calls them, therefore of three kinds, namely maids, so virgins, women that you were appropriately going to marry, women twice married, which apparently that lets them off the hook and now it's okay to sleep with them, and public women. And then Gana Kaputra has expressed an opinion that there's a fourth kind of Nayaka, namely a woman who is resorted to on some special occasion, even though she'd be previously married to another. And we have a list, a list of like 13 special occasions, which again, include like things as wildly different as you know a self-willed woman who has been previously enjoyed by many others it's therefore okay even if she's in a higher caste than mine or she's been married twice and has been enjoyed and therefore anybody can apparently do that but also things like i will sleep with this woman or pleasure myself with this woman which again we shouldn't be reading explicit sexuality into this necessarily although the context is suggesting that this is sexual the woman who will turn the mind of her husband to my advantage so it's like i'm gonna apparently get in with this wife and then i'm gonna get the husband on my side too like this is apparently totally legitimate and then of course we have like by being united with this woman i shall kill her husband and so obtain his vast riches which i covet or the this woman loves me ardently and knows all my weak points if therefore i am unwilling to be united with her she will make my faults public and thus tarnish my character and reputation like we're effectively talking about like conspiracy to commit murder by sleeping with the dude's wife beforehand and then you are currently being blackmailed by this lady so you gotta sleep with her in order to keep her quiet like vadasiana is apparently cool with both of these like I'm not entirely sure how to read this section. Like, contextually, it is just a list, so it's kind of hard to be like, well, are some of these good and are some of these bad? Like, are some of these acceptable? But the only context we have is, you know, apparently this, these are one of the many special occasions when it's totally okay to sleep with other women, even if they are married, even if they are in a higher caste, even if there are other circumstances. Like, apparently, if you are trying to kill her husband, everything is kosher. I don't know. Again, Vadasyana is not judging here. He is observing. And again, it kind of shows that sort of very Hindu attitude of just accepting the world at face value, recognizing that, like, this is the way it works. Men sleep with women to get ahead in the world. Or they sleep with women in order to plot against their husbands and, and destroy them, Hamlet style. Like, this is apparently just how it goes. So, you know, there's... A place for this in Hindu society I guess like it's really hard to kind of wrap my brain around this but I'm again really interested in the way that Vadasyana is just non-judgmental about any of this hey this is how it goes so you slept with this guy's wife so you could plot to kill him like hey 
Stranger things have happened. It is the way the world goes. And this, again, doesn't seem to be out of step with Dharma or Artha. If anything, I suspect Vadisyana would be like, clearly there's an Artha reason behind this. Like, you're going to kill him and take all of his stuff. Cool. Great. Good for you. Um, way to get ahead in the world. Um, way to seize life by the horns. Like, Vadisyana does not judge. Um, and there's something really striking about that. Like, again, you know, I don't want to get too much into the sort of prurience or the, the sort of like cultural comparison here, because again, I don't understand what's going on here, and I want to very much emphasize that. But I find it fascinating that there is just zero judgment here. How philosophical Vadasyana is being about this whole thing. Like he is sitting in some chair at the top of a mountain, observing the actions of, of the human beings down below with absolutely no, no moralizing, absolutely no judgment. Just this is the way it goes. This is how society functions. This is what is acceptable behavior. Um, in some greater sense of acceptability, like what is acceptable to the gods. Like, the Hindu whole worldview kind of operates on this assumption that there are these two forces, Brahma and, and uh, Shiva, the force of creation and the force of destruction. And Brahma creates and Shiva destroys. And it's this endless cycle, um, constantly repeating, where Brahma just constantly keeps making the world and then rests as Shiva destroys it. And then Brahma makes it all again. No judgment, no goodness. You do not, you know, do wrong to serve Shiva or do right to serve Brahma in many Hindu sort of understandings of the world. You just roll with the punches. Um, that's just the way it goes. And the best thing you can do is be in harmony with what is going on around you. Um, there's something really neat about that, I think, and very different from what Western philosophy will be consistently teaching, as well as what the rest of Eastern philosophy consistently teaches. Um, we also get a list of women who are just not to be enjoyed, which is also kind of mind-boggling, seeing as this includes uh, such women as a woman who is extremely white and a woman who is extremely black. Like, again, the cultural assumptions here are not anything that I am going to be able to like read into or weigh into. Um, it's very easy to see that as being racist, but to see them back-to-back -back like that is especially kind of sort of striking. Like, it's racism, but only like two-handed even-handed racism like we are seeking moderation in race like i don't even know it's just very striking and very interesting to see again vadasiana just sort of weigh on on this zero judgment zero sort of question of what the societal assumptions about the world actually are um i also want to note that he has a list of just friends right here out of the blue um, namely, one who is playing with you in the dust, that is, in childhood, one who is bound by obligation, so very much the sort of things that Aristotle was talking about between friendships of pleasure and friend friendships of, uh, of mutual benefit or friendships of convenience, um, but also one who is of the same disposition and fond of the same things, one who is a fellow student. Um, so in this case, we seem to be getting very close to friendships of virtue, as Aristotle is describing it. Um, and notice that Vadasiana does not make preferential treatment here. Like, there is no, you know, some friends are good and some friends are bad. Some friends will, you know, like, desert you after a while. Some friends are permanent. You know, none of that there. Again, zero judgment. Just lists. Just observations. Just this is the way the world is constructed. This is the way that people do these things. Um, very, again, philosophical, like, objective, uh, observational, descriptive instead of prescriptive, so to speak. 
Um, and we conclude with like this list of what messenger should be like, just to give you an idea of how wide-ranging this is. Um, again, this is not just about sex. It's about so much more. It's about just being a person. But again, with that complete lack of judgment on the part of Vatisiana. Um, so, again, like I, I don't know how to interpret this, but I wanted to show it to you because I found it absolutely fascinating and really interesting, especially when contrasted against all of the other texts that we're going to talk about here. Um, like, as much as I know that everybody is really interested in the pictures and the diagrams and the sexual positions, I am way less scandalized by Vadasiana talking about sexual positioning than I am scandalized by the fact that he has no problem with adultery for the purposes to commit murder. Like, I think that you should also agree with me on that, that, like, you should be scandalized by the fact that Vadasiana has no problem with adultery with the intention of committing murder. But, hey, you know, for some reason our culture is more excited about the pictures than they are about the complete lack of moral integrity here, at least by our own standards. But again, it's just fascinating. It's a really interesting cultural contrast here. Um, but real quick, because we have no time left, let's talk about the Analects and let's talk about Mozu. Um, first off, both of these texts were written in ancient China. Um, in all likelihood, Confucius was alive between like the 6th and 5th centuries BCE. Uh, reports are that he died around 479 BCE, as I recall. Um, the Analects were likely composed afterwards. You'll notice that a lot of the Analects specifically refer to Confucius's students, um, like recounting their conversations with the master. Like, that's all that Confucius means. Kong Fuzi is actually like a super Latinized translation of Kong Zi or Kong Zhu, um, which would be like Master Kong. So, this is how all of the names in, or all of the famous masters and Chinese philosophy work, like Lao Tzu is, you know, Lao Tzu, Master Lao. Um, Mo Tzu, as we're going to read later, is Master Mo. Um, like, all of their their various disciplines, even Sun Tzu, the guy who wrote The Art of War, who is roughly a little, con I think he's contem contemporaneous or a little after um, Confucius. Like, all the greatest of Chinese philosophers just sprang out of the spring and autumn period into the Warring States period um, in the Zhao dynasty, like, between 500 BCE and, and I guess like 300, 200 BCE. Um, yeah, the Warring States period is a little ambiguous on the dates. Uh, all of these guys live within like 200 years of each other because, again, it's just this massive coincidence that like some of the greatest minds the world has ever seen as far as philosophy of, are concerned all just coincided within these this like two, three hundred year period. Um, but anyway, yeah, you'll notice a lot of students here, as well as the sayings of the master. The intellects were probably, like, collected, again, probably through oral tradition or other writings, probably compiled around 300 BCE, somewhere around there, uh, which is roughly the same time as Lao Tzu would have been alive and writing. Um, so we get a lot of different stuff here, and I just wanted to just chuck in an entire chapter, because there's a lot of good stuff about friendship and about love. Um, a couple of things that I did want to draw out is Conf Confucius and um, Confucianism in general puts a very high premium on what is called filial piety, um, specifically the relationship of the son to the father and the love the son has for the father. Like, this is the cr most crucial foundational relationship in ancient Chinese culture. Um, the Chinese had practices of 
you can call it ancestor worship, but it's not quite that cut and dry, especially because later it would get cut with like Buddhism, Taoism, and all these other sort of philosophical perspectives. Um, but it is really important to Confucius and to the rituals and all the, the sort of traditions at this time that Confucius is compiling and embodying um, to recognize the role of the father in the household. Um, so you'll notice that like it is really important to Confucius um, that the the son like respect what the father uh, willed. So like in, in verse eleven of chapter one, the master said, "Observe what a man has to do in mind when his father is living, and then observe what he does when his father is dead. If for three years he makes no changes to his father's ways, he can be said to be a good son." Um, elsewhere in the text, a roughly similar thing will be emphasized. Like the son should be wearing mourning garments, like never wear anything but black, um, for like an entire year after his son, after his father's death. Like the entire household should be in mourning for a literal 365 day period. Um, this is really important to Confucius and his culture, and it's a really important part of Chinese philosophy um, as a consequence. But the other thing to notice is this idea of the gentleman um, that is frequently brought up here. Like, uh, friends and, and the gentleman are, are frequently sort of emphasized throughout many of these passages. Um, notice that, like, in verse 1 8, the master said, A gentleman who lacks gravity does not inspire awe. A gentleman who studies is unlikely to be inflexible. And sort of giving you guiding principles for how to properly be a gentleman. Um, this is actually the same term in ancient Chinese as what Master Mo is saying when he talks about Ren, um, this you know loving, kind, humane, and benevolent person. Um, this virtue, Ren, is is the same in both texts. Um, but where Confucius is very much emphasizing like Ren within your existing relationships and obligations, specifically the Ren of the son to the father, the Ren of the, the minister to the king, um, as well as to the servants and the, the kingdom at large, um, like the way that, you know, people decently act with one another on a, on a sort of regular basis, Motsu is instead sort of escalating, exploding that idea so that Ren is the fundamental relationship that should define all relationships. Um, that love is very much the universal love that he's talking about there. Um, now, Motsu is actually responding to Confucius, rejecting a lot of Confucius as a consequence, like where Confucius is very much about the rites, the rituals, the, the traditions, you know, respecting one's family obligations, respecting one's obligations to the state, um, being a good student and being a good minister and being, being a good leader and king. Like Confucius is frequently critical of other leaders at the time, but usually because they are obviously corrupt or because they are not treating people correctly or, you know, because they're not giving him a good enough position in the, the culture at large, like they don't recognize his genius. Um, as much as that seems to be a, the, like the main focus of Confucius, for Motsu, that's not nearly as important. Um, all of the government is at fault, like all the time, because they're not practicing this idea of universal love, of universal red. Um, and notice, you know, Motsu makes a really compelling argument here. Like, he's ultimately saying, you know, the, the reason why everything is out of sync, the reason why there are wars, the reason why people are fighting, the reason why there's, you know, theft and misery and all of this is because people don't love each other on this very basic fundamental way. And you can see, like, even here, 
um, like at the very end of the 15-2, he makes it sound a lot like that, that Jewish idea of, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Within the world, in all cases, the reason why calamity, usurpation, resentment, and hatred arise is because mutual love does not exist, which is why those who are rend condemn this state of affairs. Just as the Old Testament was emphasizing this sort of even-handedness, treat others as you would treat yourself, Motsu and uh, Confucius as well, to a point, both emphasize the same thing. Um, like I said, in a later part of the Analects, Confucius specifically says, you know, don't do unto others what they don't do to you. Motsu very much picks up on this and expands it to be the entire foundation of his philosophy, far greater than Confucius seems to in the Analects. Like, this is just one of many throwaway lines for Confucius, very much nestled in among all these prescriptions about how to be a gentleman, how to be Ren, um, how to be a, a pious son, um, how to govern a state, how to, you know, properly be educated. Um, for Motsu, this is very much his primary focus. This is very much why he sees the world as broken. Um, one should not prioritize the rituals, the traditions, one's family and one's close friends. Instead, one should be even-handedly loving to literally everyone around us. Um, if we weren't preferential, it would be a better place. And it's kind of hard not to see a little bit of Buddhism in this as well. Like, this sounds a lot like the idea of Buddhist compassion. Um, but the fact that it is explicitly referred to as love here, um, and translated as such, should give us pause. Um, like, Mutsu is very much agreeing with people who say that love makes the world go round, or that love is all you need. Um, but where so many of our contemporary thinkers say these things and we're just like, that's idealistic and nonsense, and those people do not understand the ways of the world, notice how Motsu immediately responds to this idea. Um, like, the back half of the reading that we have here is specifically about this. Why don't people make this a part of their government? And he even emphasizes, look at all these examples of all these crazy things that people have done for the sake of pleasing their king. Like, they wore these ridiculous garments, or they starved themselves and couldn't even stand upright without standing against a wall. Or the king would say, you know, quick, jump into that boat, all of my treasure is aboard it, even though it's on fire. And people would just, like, kill themselves trying to obey. What Motsu is saying is, I hold my leaders to account. The reason why universal love is not practiced has nothing to do with some sort of idealism or impracticality. It would be impractical for a leader to say, go kill yourself, and yet people do this all the time. It is way more practical to say everybody love each other because people will do it naturally, it will benefit them in, in the short run and the long run, and it comes as easy to do. But leaders won't do it for some reason. And so Motsu, it's really kind of interesting because he not only turns love into a political force, but then he uses it as a way of talking about the accountability of those people. Says, you know, be loving, be a loving leader, a loving king, and everyone else will follow. Which is honestly very similar to how Taoism, Taoism presents itself. That if you stand up and are generous and are, you know, do not desire, act without acting, you, the sage, will be a role model to everybody else, and they will follow suit, and the harmony will ensue. If you follow the Tao and hold yourself as a model, everyone else will follow the Tao, and as a consequence, everyone follows the Tao, the Tao is harmony, the Tao endures all as well. Um, Motsu is very much suggesting something similar here, although he's using different words to do it. 
so notice, like, Motu, as awesome as he is as a thinker, he is not nearly as influential in Chinese philosophy as, you know, Confucius and company, um, as Buddhism, as, as Taoism. But he is still significant, and a lot of later thinkers will sort of pick up on him and find more ways to sort of synthesize him with the other great Chinese philosophers and the great Chinese schools of thought. Um, but I did want to sort of, like, pick him out here, just to sort of show that, for one thing, you know, the ideas that are sort of going to be propagated in Christianity, especially where like everybody needs to love each other and love your neighbor as yourself, are definitely not happening in a vacuum. They're, they're all over the place. Um, but also just to give you an idea of how many different versions of love are kicking around in the East. You know, just as we are talking about, you know, Plato's idea of love and Aristotle's idea of love and Cicero's idea of friendship and the Old Testament view of love and how, you know, they're similar but ultimately not like one pure view. The last thing I want you to do is conflate all Eastern philosophy as though it all has the same idea at the end of the day. Um, like, people make lots of broad sweeping generalizations about the difference between Western philosophy and Eastern philosophy. Like, Western philosophy is, you know, exclusive while Eastern philosophy is inclusive. Western philosophy is rule-oriented while Eastern... It really isn't. It's not that simple. There are exclusive Eastern traditions and there are inclusive Western traditions. There are rule-oriented Eastern traditions and there are much more sort of lackadaisical, open-minded Western traditions. It's complicated. Um, and here I think we've got a pretty decent cross-section of some of the ideas that go into the Eastern attitude towards love and friendship. That it is, in, for you know Confucius and company, a very personal thing, very relational, very obligation-focused. For the Buddhists, it's something that you get rid of. It is something dangerous, potentially fraught, and therefore both love and friendship are out. By contrast, you've got Motsu, who says that it's the foundation of the entire order of the universe, and that, like, if we would all just be nice to each other, if we would all practice the sort of human love towards one another, all of our problems would just magically sort themselves out. And then you've got the Kama Sutra, which is unabashedly in favor of, hey, sexual pleasure, friendly pleasure, you know, just let's indulge in these worldly practices. There is a time and place for them. Um... These are all, like, all of these thinkers would disagree with each other in very strong, direct ways. They could have different sort of ideas and traits in common, but it is not one unified perspective. Um, and this is just a bit of it. Like, we didn't even talk a little bit about Shinto, because I have no idea what's going on in Shinto. And there's tons of other religions and offshoots and, and scholars and thinkers that are, you know, wrapped up in these traditions that I definitely couldn't speak to. Um, so I do want to emphasize, sort of give us a glimpse, like show what is on the other side of the fence here without either falling into the sort of romanticization of it or the just flat-out rejection of it. Um, but at the same time, like I'm definitely not qualified to speak authoritatively as to like the entire picture here, and we definitely do not have time to go any deeper, unfortunately. Um, what I will say, though, is that this will be the foundation of our first response paper. Um, so in the response paper due at the end of this week, um, I hope that you will look at these Eastern readings and contrast them with the Western readings that we've been running through, um, especially the ideas uh, in sort of like nascent Stoicism that we're going to be talking about with Cicero in the next reading. Um, so keep this in mind, like think about these ideas. There are no wrong answers. Like pick on whatever sort of interests you about today's reading and, and feel free to expand upon it. Um, 
mostly I'm just looking for what is your reaction? What do you think about these thinkers? How do they jive with your own ideas about love, about friendship, about relationships or sexuality? Uh, like, what do they have to say that you took away, uh, that you thought profound or moving or compelling? Um, that's all I'm looking for. So by all means, like, write whatever you want uh, as far as that's concerned. Write whatever strikes you. Um, and we can talk about your writing in the, the days and weeks to come. Um, as I said, for next week, we're going to start in on Cicero's De Amicita. We're going to get about two-thirds of the way through. Um, and then we're going to read more Stoicism and finish it off next week. Um, so I will talk to you then.